Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 137th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. I go by my initials. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We're the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas and literature of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we are joined by Pete Worrell. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Facebook, uh, Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. You can get started now, cue them up. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Pete Worrell is the Managing Director and Co-Chief Executive Officer at Bigelow LLC, where he guides entrepreneurs seeking to sell or merge their businesses. He is the author of Enterprise Value, How the Best Owner Managers Build Their Fortunes, Capture Their Company's Gains, and Create Their Legacy. Uh, he also hosts the Enterprise Value Podcast, which I'm delighted to have uh, been on as a guest. So we're turning the tables today. Uh, in addition to, um, we, we kind of connected first because of our interests in uh, Ayn Rand, as well as in the Abundance 360 community. Um, but Pete has also a particular interest in the intersection of psychology and finance and its relevance to building enterprise value in the private transaction market. Pete, Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Jag. I really have been looking forward to this. So looking forward to the next uh, hour or however long we have together. It'll be an hour. So let's dive in. Uh, one thing that I know our audience always likes to learn about is our guest's origin story, where you grew up, early influences that fed your interest in, in entrepreneurship and your particular uh role and, and uh, I might say calling to help entrepreneur owners um, unlock their value, the value of their enterprises and transition to the next stage in their lives uh, and how you built Bigelow into an M&A powerhouse. Where did it all start? So Jag, I think I should mention that I uh, grew up in the 1960s and 70s. I went to high school and college both in the 1970s. And so in North America, when you grew up in the 60s and 70s, certain things were happening. And I would say that the reason that I ended up uh, as an entrepreneur and working exclusively with entrepreneur owner managers is because as I grew up, I saw the end of the age of the uh, bureaucracy. So I would say, you know, maybe coming out of World War II, the 40s, the 50s, maybe even the 60s were a time where the bureaucratic world was at its height in North America. Uh, there was a lot of top-down hierarchical things that were going on and that were successful and then you know maybe about 1980 suddenly um, through a number of technology changes the tables turned and the playing field was leveled for entrepreneurs and i i saw this i saw it in my own family my parents are working people who owned a small business and i uh, as i got out of business school I was trying to make some decisions about uh, what my future was going to be. And candidly, most of my um, 
my job potential was with the big bureaucratic world because when you came out of business school, what did you do? Did you go to work for Pepsi or did you go to work for, you know, a computer company of which in the Boston area there were um, countless more then than there are today. Uh, but the, a great thing happened, which was the semiconductor chip grew in popularity. The IBM PC was introduced in 1981. The uh, internet, we plugged into the internet in 1996. And like those combinations of things completely leveled the playing field for entrepreneurs, which is what attracted me to real, the realization that, wow, if you and I play a game right now, and I ask you to think about what are the few, what's the one or two of the things that have most improved your quality of life in the past four or five years or even four or five months? I bet you you're going to name things that have to do with technology or podcasts or you know, being able to uh, listen to books online or being able to use video instead of business travel or things, all of which, if you think about them, were invented by entrepreneurs. You didn't mention that the um, social security was um, clicked to CPI. You didn't mention a new government program in the agricultural department because those aren't the things that brought you great quality of life. It's really the entrepreneur world and sector that did that. So I came uh, out of, um, I came into adulthood really at a propitious time where suddenly the age of the entrepreneur was upon us and it's, uh, just an extraordinary time to be an entrepreneur owner manager none like it in the world ever before and of course um we connected over ayn rand and atlas shrugged atlas shrugged is unique in that it is of course it's a love story it's a mystery uh it's sort of a sci-fi epic but it's really alone in being a story about uh, business about capitalism and you know the individual entrepreneurs and uh, what their motivations are what their challenges are how they're perceived so um, at what point did Ayn Rand's books and, and literature come into your life and any favorite characters or, or themes so um, I think for me, the, the, that she came into my life probably in my time in high school. And then I studied, you know, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, maybe some other of her shorts, uh, of her short writing works in college or graduate school. Uh, but I'm really an autodidact. I really, you know, never stop uh, learning and reading. And so the more I dug into Ayn Rand, the more I loved her. Uh, I think, as you know, uh, I have another business in addition to Bigelow, which is a real estate development business, which his name is called Dagny Taggart. Um, <laughs> I guess I was in love with Dagny from the time that I met her. And part of my um, appreciation for her as an individual has to do with her, not only her willingness to be an independent critical thinker, but her lack of desire to justify her lack of need to explain or justify why she thought what she thought or why she took the decisions that she thought which in the world that we live in this mass popular culture that we live in is still largely a world of bureaucrats and so if you are an independent critical thinker like dagny is like you are like i am it can be a very isolating place to be. In fact, it could be kind of a lonely place to be. So it makes sense to me of why 
um, when on that particular work, when Dagny met or put met Hank Reardon, uh, that they they connected so so critically because if you live in the world that we live in, it isn't that frequently that you run into someone who feels that same way, that same independent critical thinking. And when you do, you have to you have to put your arms around them and hold on to them as tight as you can. So uh, actually, uh, one of our my businesses is named Dagny Taggart. Another one actually is named John Galt. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, and someday when you come to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you'll see one of our pieces of real estate where we had a, um, a very talented muralist from Italy actually do a mural for us in the lobby of one of our big office buildings, which is right out of uh, Ayn Rand. It went, I don't know where he got the complete inspiration, but when you see it, you won't mistake it. And so, um, yeah, it's just a little, um, it's a little reminder to me and to people around us to be able to appreciate that different point of view. I, and, you know, uh, my position on this is clear through which all good things come, right? So uh, really uh, my love for that began, it started early. It didn't ever ebb. I will tell you that um, I watched the three-part video of uh, Atlas Shrugged, um, I found it, I think, on Amazon, and um, I may have watched it uh, a couple of years ago, maybe 2019 or 20. And I was uh, shocked by how it was very difficult to discern the picture that Ayn Rand had painted or that the directors had put together in this video that's different from the world that we live in. It seemed to be the world we live in. It seems so much so that my wife, who was a family physician, so she's not connected to this world at all, but happened to be passing through the room and heard a couple of these things going on in the video and stopped and said, when did that happen? When did they decide that you could only own one business? It literally asked that question. And I thought, oh man, we're just living in a world where this is too too near to reality to be that fun. So. Yeah. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I remember when we had uh, Peter Thiel was our honoree at our gala a couple of years ago. And, and he talked about also like you having read uh, Ayn Rand earlier, but it wasn't until, you know, the 70s that he started to say, well, wait a second, you know, this is uh, this is starting to happen. And it just, he recognized the kinds of challenges that she dramatized in Atlas Shrugged in, in what was happening in the world. But fortunately, Ayn Rand um, said, Atlas Shrugged is not a prophecy of our unavoidable destruction, but a manifest manifesto of man's ability to avoid it if we choose to change course. And I also liked something that you just said about uh, the characters and the way that you identified with them, because a lot of times one of the slams are, well, the characters are flat, but I think that they were in many ways poignant, particularly with regards to their loneliness. And um, I think that that is something that Ayn Rand herself experienced, even, you know, though she was famous, um, but she, uh, she was also isolated. If you think about the time when she was, you know, arriving in the United States and 
in uh, and then the thirties and the forties, and she created Atlas Shrugged in, in a way as a way to not be so lonely to create these characters that would live within her mind, and and uh, and now they live within ours. So um, I want to talk now about another very important book, which continues to live in my mind, and that is Enterprise Value. Very proud that I have a uh, inscribed copy here. Good. Um, and uh, also, you know, my usual thought, and I, I won't name names, but uh, so often I'll, because I like to both read and listen to books and uh so often there'll be a brilliant writer but when he decides to narrate his own book or her own book they just don't have the voice for it yours is the exception though because you narrate it and uh i, I think you did a, a great job so um tell us maybe who you wrote it for and also perhaps who you did not write it for and what was your process in pulling it together? Yeah, so thank you for that. I um, felt called to write this book because I had many friends uh, and clients uh, who, after they had uh, built a, an enterprise of great value and after they had gone through a capital gain transaction with our firm, said to me, oh, Pete, if I'd only known that when I started instead of finding out now, and I had this reprised many times to me and I felt, well, actually, you can know this stuff that I'm writing about in advance. And it is, it's better if it, you know it in advance, it's completely knowable. And so I set forth to write a series of stories so that entrepreneur owner managers who, if they're curious and they want to learn about it, could see perhaps a little of themselves in these stories. These stories are all 100% true. They're not mock-ups of like wishful characters and they're not stories that have been mashed together. They're actually true piece by piece. I've just changed the names in them, but actually um, my friends who have read the book know who they are. And I would say that, you know, going back to Ayn Rand for a minute, Jag, um, you know, our uh, mass culture makes it very easy for young people to conform. I mean, that's what our government school system is about, right? K through 12, this is about conforming. If you, if you conform, you sit in the front row in the right-hand seat, and if you ask the teacher every time as they're about to leave, is that gonna be on the test? Well, then you'll know what to memorize and conform. And yet you see people who can, or have a difficulty conforming, or in some cases they can't conform. And they are brilliant independent thinkers, uh, and they are very isolated. Um, and what this book that I wrote made me think about was that this is for them. I um, very affectionately call these entrepreneur owner managers my ADD dyslexic misfits who um, typically uh, hadn't done well in uh, formal schooling, who frequently are um, absolutely expert in their domain. They're not necessarily risk takers except in their own domain. Uh, and inside their domain, they are frequently world-class, either as technical prodigies or as uh, understanding the need of their customer and being able to persuade their customer to try something new. And it's really an, oh, by the way, it's really an accident that in fulfilling this 
calling that they have, that they build something that's of great value. And frequently they get to a point where they realize that they've built something of great value, much greater value than they ever dreamed that they were going to have. And they, of course, like all of us, can sense a little um, uh, loss aversion. And they get to a point where they feel like, gee, I've really worked a long time. Wouldn't it be great to put this business together with a firm that could sustain it beyond me? And if they've created something of great value, you see, actually they've created a big challenge because it's hard to, to transfer the ownership of something of great value to something beyond me. I mean, usually it's not the management team because they don't have the capital. Usually it might not be the family, ditto, same reason. So there, there's a complex series of, of emotions there, which are on the one hand have to do with purpose and meaning and uh, intention. And those things are all wrapped up with this thing that's called the enterprise where it's, you know, uh, the bureaucratic um, management schools would teach more about management, 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 whereas with entrepreneurs, it's really more about leadership. So that's the reason I wrote the book is so they could see a little bit of themselves in the book. I love the fact when people call me, as someone did this week, they cold called me and said, I read your book. I'm on page 170. Um, and it really allows us to be able to find entrepreneur owner managers who resonate with those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And um, some number of them probably we don't hear from because they read it and they didn't like it and they closed the book and they don't resonate. And that's that's cool with us, too. So we wrote it for entrepreneur owner managers, seasoned, successful ones who have already gone through the startup phase. It's not written for it's Silicon Valley startup to sell out. It's not written for wannabe entrepreneurs. It's certainly not written for corporate executives. I had a very funny situation the other day, Jag. Um, I take yoga lessons. And the fellow that I take yoga lessons from, I mean, he is really into it. I mean, he went to India for several years. He's the real deal. And he's uh, 10 years younger than me. And as we were chatting recently, he said something about, you know, something like, Oh, this, you know, it's too bad that, oh, I know what it was. He was thinking about um, psychedelics and we were chatting about the prevalence of psychedelics and some studies going on at John Hopkins and other places. And he said to me, isn't it too bad that the psychedelics in, you know, domain is going to get taken over by those capitalist people and they're going to turn us into for-profit. And I said, dude, wait a minute. What you're talking about is not capitalism. What you're talking about is corporatism, where big bureaucratic organizations with people at the helm who have no skin in the game are making decisions that aren't necessarily in your best interest. Those aren't entrepreneurs. And he said, wow, no one ever explained that difference to me before. And I thought, whew, that's scary, right? Yeah. Here's a guy I should oh, know better. Interesting that you're uh, a fellow Yogi um, reminds me of Chip Wilson, who we've also had on this show and honored at our day one. He's become a big um, supporter of the Atlas Society. And uh, he, we, we tell his story also in one of our Draw My Lives. And he, he definitely was a, a misfit growing up and he did not excel in school. And um, that was, you know, he didn't know what he was going to do, and he ended up going to work on the Alaska Pipeline, read Atlas Shrugged, changed his life. But, um, yeah, I, I think 
from reading his autobiography, it seems that there were many aspects of his transition that he wasn't, you know, prepared for. And so I, I thought it was interesting in your book that you talk about, well, when you start to contemplate, you know, at some point, like maybe you're 30, but 10 years, you know, 40, 20 years, however many long in, in the future, you're, you're going to, you're not going to be running the, the, your company forever and kind of beginning early to, um, to identify and cultivate advisors that can really help to prepare you. Yeah. And, so there's, uh, there, there's so many times, Jag, when, um, when an entrepreneur begins an enterprise and they're doing it because they see a particularly see a need in a customer and they fulfill a customer need and um, you know time goes on and they do great things and they build an organization and one of the reasons that they started their organization was to increase their freedom i mean these these are people who uh for the most part just to be ridiculous on this example, they can't go to work for Bank of America because they, they would be just clinically depressed or they'd get fired so fast, it wouldn't work. They're not rule followers. And so uh, when they built something, they built it to experience their freedom. But at some point they may have inadvertently um, hurt their freedom. You know, suddenly they have hundreds of employees who are counting on, on them to have the business be successful. And so I frequently ask entrepreneurs, are you driven by the past or are you being called to the future? Because if you're being driven by the past, by those needs of the past, I kind of get what you're doing. But what is your future and what is calling you about your future? And frequently that's when an entrepreneur might say, hey, you know, I've built this thing. I love it. But um, putting it in the hands of a new investor who can take care of it for the next several generations, that's not a negative. That should be my crowning achievement, that I get a chance to pick who that next investor is going to be. So really, in the way that we've thought about it, we try to turn the whole that whole uh, world upside down to be able to say to the entrepreneur owner manager, you can choose from a group of worldwide of the best investors who might be the next best investor for your firm and thereby achieve your freedom again. Well, it's interesting what you just said about going into an enterprise, wanting to be free, and then finding yourself all of a sudden um, beholden, responsible, right. uh, feeling guilty even. And um, it, again, kind of goes back to Atlas Shrugged um, that these characters that uh, felt that their business was almost even more important than themselves and their own um, freedom as the government was making it more and more impossible for them to, to operate their, their businesses. And it's a contrast from sort of this caricature of a CEO or an owner as uh, only thinking about himself and not giving a thought to others and as you describe in the book, it's not been your experience that they feel so responsible for their employees and, and their customers and their suppliers that they uh, they, they don't always um, think about their own desires or their own needs. So. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, we believe, I believe, and and our, our team at Begala believes 
that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social force on the planet. They're the most powerful pro-economic force on the planet. What do I mean by that? Very few people understand that when an entrepreneur, first of all, to build sustainable uh, wealth in our world only happens one way. It happens exclusively by being an entrepreneur. So look, Jeff Immelt was the president of GE for uh, 15 years. And uh, when I checked this recently, he made more than $25 million a year every year for those 15 years. But there's no Jeffrey Immelt Charitable Foundation at the world-class level because he wasn't an entrepreneur. He didn't have skin in the game. He didn't have capital at risk. And he did it for it, didn't have a capital gain. Our clients all have these capital gains. And what is a very little known fact about them, Jag, is that um, in a, a 40 transaction look back that we just did, we looked back at 40 transactions. And out of those transactions, our clients on average gave 10% of the transaction value to their employees. The variability around the average was from 0% to 33%. But on average, it was 10 with in in some cases 5% went to one group of employees and another 5% went to another group these people have given an opportunity for the people on their team to have a capital gain that they never would have had otherwise and so actually um they formed an enterprise to give themselves more freedom they built it along the way and when they uh, when they do choose to exit it what they choose on average is to give about 10% of the value to the people all around them, which is just remarkable. So in those 40 transactions, I'm not gonna get this right, but there was, uh, I'm gonna say a billion dollars of uh, capital gain given away to the um, employees of those firms. So that's that's big, right? That's that's Those people don't get a chance to do that in any other way. And for many of them, it's, it's life-changing. In some cases, they are part of a senior management team. In some cases, they're part of an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, but it doesn't really matter. All of our clients uh, virtually have this same discussion. So it's, it's a very fascinating thing that happens. Now, um, we've got questions pouring in and we're gonna get to some of those. I have many more of my own, but you just uh, mentioned your team at Bigelow, which reminded me of um, some research that you guys conducted, independent research uh, into the positive personality traits most common among entrepreneur owners. And five rows to the top, some were you know, expected like uh, leadership and grit, but there was one trait that uh, showed up in the top five that I wasn't expecting uh, and that was gratitude. So. Can you tell us a bit about that research and any thoughts on the role gratitude plays in the careers of successful owner managers? Yes, so um, this research was done in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania. It's using what's called the VIA Values in Action. Uh, it's a website where anyone can go and go look at that website and take this VIA uh, character strength test. There's 24 character strengths. We applied this to seasoned successful entrepreneurs where we had a very specific uh, definition of that. And um, you're, uh, we'd be happy to have you look and read the entire 
research, which was published in a white paper, or you can read one page. Either one of them is on our website, BigelowLLC.com. The five character strengths of seasoned successful entrepreneurs are in order, authenticity, fairness, leadership, gratitude, and zest. So what do we mean by that? So authenticity, well, that would be what Brene Brown probably calls vulnerability. Fairness, how to create a win-win uh, uh, positive sum game as opposed to a win-lose game. I mean, entrepreneurs, they, they don't have the scale to, to win a win-lose game. So they, they create win-win games. Um, fairness, uh, sorry, that was fairness. Uh, leadership, not management, leadership. Gratitude, uh, you know, a great, a great quote that came out of that research was, I'm so grateful that everything I have, I earned and zest and entrepreneur owner managers scored two standard deviations higher on zest than the general population. And so it's really, um, if you are an entrepreneur, you can look at these characteristics and maybe learn a little bit about yourself. If you're an advisor or if you work with entrepreneurs, you probably ought to know this because those characteristics are right there. I mean, that authenticity is right there on their sleeve. Uh, I will just very quickly tell you, we did another piece of research with the Harvard Kennedy School on the risk tolerance of seasoned successful entrepreneurs, and it had a very surprising, at least to the media and to the general public outcome, which is that it was testing whether or not entrepreneurs are more or less risk takers than the general public. And what it concluded was they are less risk takers than the general public, except in their domain. So in their domain, where they understand their domain beautifully well, they're willing to take risks that you and I might say, whoa, that's a risk that I wouldn't take, but they're not willing to take any risk. So if we just said, hey, Jag and Pete and this entrepreneur, uh, Jennifer, are going to go and um, buy this apartment building together in Beverly Hills. No, no, no. That, that, that's not of interest typically to entrepreneurs. They would say, I want to be in my domain. So, yeah, we have a, a, a great deal of that. We also have one more study I'll mention, uh, which... Um, is a study that we did with uh, seasoned successful entrepreneurs before and after they had a capital gain transaction on what were the most important qualities to them. And it was uh, absolutely fascinating um, and will disabuse anybody who thinks that entrepreneurs are in this exclusively for the profit because it really wasn't about that. Fantastic. Well, speaking of gratitude, someone is with us that uh, has pushed the Atlas Society to, to do more philosophical and creative work on gratitude gratitude as a self-interested and entrepreneurial value. And that is Jay LaPere, of course, chairman of the board of the Atlas Society. He says, uh, Pete loved your book, great tool for entrepreneurs considering the next stage. And he has a question. Pete, can you explain your view of agency and why private owner companies better align with your view of business versus the incentive problems with scale in public company and agent managers? And any thoughts on how to better align incentives in public companies? Wow, so Jay, that's a, that's a great question. I'm gonna take it in small bites. So I think what Jay's referring to, Jag, is what we would call the principal agency problem. Um, 
de definition is uh, a, an entrepreneur owner manager is a principal. In other words, they have their capital at risk. They don't have just the opportunity for a capital gain or a rise in their capital. They have the opportunity for a complete capital loss as opposed to an agent, which would be an advisor to an entrepreneur. Uh, an example would be a wealth advisor who advises their clients. They could be a great wealth advisor, but they are an agent for the principal, which is their client. In the case of Jay's question, a, um, well, I'll go back to picking on Jeff Immel. Um, since he was the CEO of GE, he would be an agent for the stockholders. He would not be the principal, uh, that would be the stockholders. And there's uh, great uh, literature on this, research literature, both in the finance and in the behavioral finance area. Uh, uh, an economist at Harvard, Richard Zeckhauser, has a book, I think it might even be called The Principal Agency Problem. Anyone who's interested can, can learn more about this by just Googling those things. But essentially, um, in my world, JAG, I am not interested in anyone's opinion if they don't have skin in the game. I'm like not interested in anyone's opinion. I'm not interested in someone's academic opinion because as we know from our current uh, society, uh, there are opinions about everything that are uh, of no cost. What interests me is someone who's got an opinion who's got skin in the game because they have something to lose and they have that, that means accumulated scar tissue or experience to me. Well, that is super valuable to me. I really wanna hear that. So I think what Jay's referring to and what I have a really hard time with, and it's why, for example, I am not an investor in any public companies except for one which I'm locked up in. But with that exception, all my investments are in the private market because I dislike the principal agency problem so intensely. I see it, by the way, in public companies. I also unfortunately see it in not-for-profit organizations where um, the profit motive is conceived of as being a very simple thing, but it's not just the profit, it's for an entrepreneur owner manager is as we talked about, it's their often their identity, it's their sense of purpose, it's their intention in the world. All those things together with their capital at risk mean that they really have skin in the game. Their opinion about their business, I'm super interested in. And so how do you get that to happen more in a public company? Gee, I think we've tried all kinds of things. And I think at the end of the day, uh, it could be that scale itself is part of our issue. I mean, when I think about uh, Dagny and Hank Reardon, I think about them going forward to in their organizations. And I don't know if Ayn Rand would agree with me on this, but I think the way I read it was that they ignored the public opinion around them. They more or less ignored what the public sector was doing. And they said, we've got to do this because to do this is going to bring about great positive impact on people's lives. I see entrepreneurs doing that all the time. I unfortunately don't see public company CEOs who have that same inspiration mostly. All right. Um, we got a question from Instagram, My Modern Galt. Good to see you, my friend, back with us. Asking Pete, what do you think is the biggest factor holding people back today from starting their own enterprise? Bad market, government regulations? I think the uh, three most addictive substances on the planet are heroin, carbohydrates, 
and a monthly salary. Interesting. And I think if you see yourself as existing on earning wages from others, that it is enormously challenging to pry yourself away from that heroin and to think about doing it on your own. But the rewards of doing so, I have seen over and over. And now look, my friends and my clients have these successful businesses and they're the top 1% of all businesses. I think the SBA, the Small Business Administration would say, in fairness, that 50% of all startups fail by their fifth year. So if you take the plunge and don't succeed, that happens too. But I think that right now, there are so many ways for us to be comfortable in our current existence. And I think comfort is overrated. And I think security is an illusion. And it's up to us to be the entrepreneurs to bring about the positive change that we want to see in the world. That's going on a meme. <laughs> All right. Also on Instagram, Callum Foch has a question asking Pete, do you have any thoughts on small businesses being forced to close while large businesses were able to continue working during the lockdowns? I was incredibly disappointed by the lack of character shown by our country during the quarantine. People say pandemic, 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 but really when they want to talk about the negative stuff that was done to the country, they ought to be saying quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. There was a uh, pathetically unscientific, uh, and I would say maybe even illegal view taken by public health officials and by public officials, which caused our country and our place to have great uh, negative consequences, the extent of which we haven't yet seen. I was appalled that we could go into Walmart, but we couldn't go into the corner store. I did not understand how the virus was so smart. It knew not to go into Walmart, but it was going to be in the corner store. And so I, I feel like that's an example of where we gave up our freedom to some nameless public health official, which don't get me wrong, I'm sure they were all well-intentioned, but none of them were educated or experienced in this kind of thing. And so they gave us what they got. And uh, it was a tragedy that we had that happen. Yes, uh, one of our senior scholars, Richard Salzman, wrote a great piece on this. He said, follow the science in every aspect, which includes following economic science as well. And um, certainly was just very heartbreaking to see um, a lot of people who had spent their lives creating restaurants or um, you know gyms or whatever not not make it through. And um, and also, as you say, I mean, the appalling thing, you, you know, whether you think the motives were good or bad, um, I'm probably not as uh, sort of forgiving about that as as you would be. But um, you know, there there was a once you get a taste of power, it's it's hard to that that might be another one of your addictive substances in addition to a month, a, you know, weekly salary. Oh, but, um, look, I think I'm in, in complete agreement with you. And I, I would say it this way, uh, Jag, I would say that when as Americans, we give up our individual freedoms unthinkingly, 
like we gave up the freedom of assembly and we gave up a lot of other freedoms, just crazy. You're absolutely right. It becomes like, well, we did it then. Why can't we do it now? And also, I think there's a tendency on the part of even well-intentioned public officials that they want to build the empire, right? They want to build and do it better and better. And they know better than we do. So that's why we end up with that. But I, I felt it was just a, a tragedy that that was the case. And yet there have been some pockets of people who didn't behave that way, who exceed, really excelled and are further ahead than ever. I, I would say that for the society, 2020, um, no events, but we managed to find a way in California, in Malibu, California, to host our gala. We did it outside, you know, we had rapid tests and all of that. And, um, and we also rejected government bailout money and that I think was a turning point for our organization as people uh, respected the integrity and also just the, well, we'll figure it out, we'll make it happen, we'll take some risks. Um, and I, I think the risks were maybe more legal risks. Fortunately, no one uh, contracted COVID from that, that outside event. All right, um, another question now from Twitter. Alexander Ricci asks, people get intimidated by the number of enterprises that fail in their first two years, but isn't this also a learning opportunity? Yeah, look, um, I'm not at all um, cavalier about um, failure. Um, I think that um, when, you know, I was a, I think a junior in college, my parents' business was forced to file for chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, and they, um, you know, had personally guaranteed loans to the bank. I remember the bank officers coming to our house and telling, uh, telling my parents they were going to have to sell the house. And I, my mother cried every night for three years. Um, wow. It turned out they didn't have to sell the house. It turned out they worked their way through the chapter 11 bankruptcy and came out of it again, a smaller business. Uh, but uh, th there's either success in life or there's learning. And so for me, that uh, chapter, which was extremely painful, was a lot of learning. I mean, I got an MBA in my junior in my summer of my junior year between college years because I saw what happened I saw mis uh, decisions that were made on the part of my parents and on the part of others which I could see at the time were the wrong ones I could see that people were trying to help I could see that if you let yourself get into the legal system in our country you are absolutely a uh you're absolutely dependent upon being in the system as opposed to trying to resolve issues yourself. And so I'm all about uh, with your questioner about, yeah, the um, sense of failure is a big one. Uh, I don't like to fail. I've had spectacular failures, but uh, I've chalked them up to lots of learning. And look, just in case I forget, I keep I, I journal like mad so I can always go back and see what a knucklehead moves I made. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say um, I've also made a lot of mistakes. And in a way, one of the upsides of them is um, you survive. You know, it, it wasn't fun, but uh, it was embarrassing or cost you a lot of money or whatever, but you, you just keep trucking. And that sort of frees you up in a way to say, no, it's okay. I, I can fail again, you know, so that you don't become overly risk averse. 
uh, and loss of birth. So um, sticking on that psychological theme in the in your book, Enterprise Value, you write not just about the financial transactions and the financial transitions uh, that enterprise and entrepreneur owner managers face when exiting a business that they've grown and they've managed on day-to-day basis for decades, but also the challenges and opportunities for their personal transitions as well, specifically surrounding identifying a new purpose. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe provide some examples? Yeah, so um, as we started out by saying many entrepreneur owner managers began their uh, enterprises for a reason. Sometimes they get fired. Sometimes they had a brilliant idea. Sometimes they tried three other things that didn't work, but they started for a reason. Um, Sometimes they're trying to help out their family if they go into a family business. And frequently they get to a place where either maybe they've uh, got some other uh, ideas in their mind, personally or professionally. Maybe they want to start another business. Maybe they want to learn to paint. Maybe they want to take more time off and, and go for that trip to New Zealand. Maybe they want to move to New Zealand. Maybe they there's things that they want to discover about themselves to unlock some of their potential. And so um, I became fascinated with the whole field of positive psychology, which really builds on strengths as opposed to clinical psychology, which tries to fix uh, sickness, weaknesses. And the intersection between positive psychology and behavioral finance. And I could see that um, many entrepreneur owner managers would make decisions that were um, not rational. My definition of rational would be would not be in their own best interest. They made decisions uh, sometimes because it it was a mistake, but more often they made decisions that I began to see that you could systematically sense that they were gonna make these decisions, that they were gonna make decisions which were, they made them over and over again, which were incorrect decisions, which were actually uh, predictable. And so really we brought positive psychology into our practice to be able to think about how do you build on the strengths of the person, the organization, the whatever, that are trying to get you to unlock your potential. And part of that could be that, that you haven't fully discovered your potential in your organization, that you wanna go beyond that. And that's an area that uh, I have found great resistance from entrepreneurs. So many of them, Jag, have said to me, yeah, yeah, I I really want to do that next thing with my potential, but I have to finish this first. And really, there's two ways to bring about change, right? You can walk away from something or you can walk towards the next thing. And like, I think it makes a hell of a lot more sense to walk towards the next thing, but it turns out that's a really, really challenging thing for people, entrepreneur owner managers to do. And so a lot of our work with them is starts there. It really starts with, is your life exactly the way you want to have it to be right now? No, mine either. Well, what are those things that you're trying to get to be a destination for you in your life? Where do you want to take this part of your journey? And does doing a capital gain transaction get you closer to that or not? And so we spend a lot of time talking about that, frequently months or sometimes years with entrepreneurs in advance of a capital gain transaction. Uh, This reflects some of the the questions that are coming in over the transom. Thoughts on the impact of 
ESG and DEI initiatives on business in general, any concerns about such initiatives negatively affecting the morale or the independence of business leaders? So um, I think those two initiatives, DEI and ESG, were probably formed to fix something that was perceived as being wrong or to right a wrong. That is just completely out of my vocabulary. I mean, I do recognize that if you have a broken arm, you have to go to the doctor and get it set. So if there are some things that are true wrongs that we need to fix, let's fix them. But what interests me more than DEI or ESG, which are these fix it uh, type of programs, is really how do you not fix something temporarily, but how do you build on strength? How do you build the organization or the family or the individual that you're trying to unlock? Now that's a lot more interesting to me than these uh, short-term uh, fixes, which I don't, it's like someone going on a diet. It just doesn't work. If you want to lose weight and be in shape, you have to, you know, you have to have certain habits and those habits lead you to a certain place. It's the same thing here. So I'm afraid I'm not very uh, bullish on those kind of initiatives. And I, I've seen them and I've been actually very close to them in some organizations. And I've just felt like the people who were behind them, their intentions were really great. Uh, but I, I don't believe in trying to uh, get in shape by going on a diet. I want to get in shape by changing my life plan and joining a fitness club and getting strong and being healthy and sleeping well, blah, blah, blah. Does that help you? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, now, one you know interest of, of mine, having you on and having you involved with the Atlas Society, obviously I'm in charge of running a nonprofit, and I think in many ways, um, because I spent the vast majority of my career uh, in business at a private um, fruit and vegetable company, I tend to bring that kind of for-profit perspective to to what we're doing. And uh, I remember, you know, even when I was back at Dole Food Company and I, I went to uh, to talk to somebody who was uh, leading another nonprofit and I was trying to get them interested in social media and I was trying to get them interested in videos and, um, you know, which were just disrupting business at the time. And, you know, unfortunately still have, have yet to kind of um, made it fully into the, into the nonprofit sector. And, um, you know, they just weren't, they weren't interested. They just did things the way that they'd always done things. And my attitude was like, well, you may technically be a nonprofit, but you still do have competitors, right? So um, the, the revenues, you know, that the people that are your, I'd say your customers, as opposed to necessarily your con consumers, your donors have a lot of alternatives. And so you need to be able to provide uh, a competitive value proposition. So um, now you, because of your, uh, your success and also because of your orientation, your gratitude, um, you have the experience of being on uh, the board of several nonprofits. Um, 
in that capacity, what lessons from the business world um, would help nonprofits flourish and be uh, more effective in accomplishing their goals? Well, so so um, I am going to say some things, which I'm interested to find out if you think that they're controversial or not, because you're a CEO of a not-for-profit, a very successful one. But um, what I'm going to say, start out by saying is, uh, I've been a member in the past 40 years of 30 different governing boards, for-profit and not-for-profit. I happen to know that because I had to count them for a different reason. And what I learned is that there's no difference between not-for-profits and for-profits. That the, for the best ones, they all need mission, vision, energy, shared purpose, great people. They all have to have what in the for-profit world we call profit, the not-for-profit world we call surplus. And it, I mean, it, it's all the same shit, okay? And we just call it by different names. If anything, I think the thing that concerns me about the, the not-for-profit area is the lack of accountability. In the for-profit world, in the entrepreneur owner manager world, we have, in a sense, perfect accountability because the entrepreneur owner manager has all the capital risk and so they're totally accountable for what goes on. In the public company world, we have less accountability because there's a principal agency problem. In the uh, not-for-profit world, I would argue, in my experience, I've seen even less accountability because candidly, the governing boards frequently are not strong they don't necessarily know what their role is. They don't have experience in governance and they don't have experience necessarily in the domain that the not-for-profit is in. So that makes it really challenging to be a good governing board member. And so what I've seen is that in the not-for-profit world, there frequently is a feeling like, wow, um, we're doing a good job at this. So now maybe we can serve this bigger group and maybe we can serve this bigger group and we can serve this bigger group. And so there's a lack of uh, accountability to strategy, there's a lack of accountability to who the principals are because the principals are hard to find. There are some organizations that are really membership driven, that really do have accountability to the members, but I think that there are a very large number of them which you would expect to be membership driven, but there's no accountability to the members. So that troubles me a lot. And actually, um, my experience, which has been from the teensiest, teensiest not-for-profits, like a startup of uh, a little um, prenatal clinic uh, that turned into a large organization, which Karine and I both were involved with the startup of, to uh, a multi-billion dollar post-secondary uh, not-for-profit. Um, those experiences have, to a certain degree, at my advanced age of 65, turned me into feeling like, you know, maybe the for-profit investing that I do that's in the startup phase for people who are doing some great, positive, life-changing stuff is actually the way that I'll um, make the, what I formerly would have called a charitable uh, organization because um, frequently you lose your money in those startups. So it's kind of like a charity, you, you, you give it away, <laughs> you write it off. Uh, but sometimes you can also just be coaching, they can be a mentor, they can do great things, and they can turn out to be as uh, world changing as the, the not for profit world. So I, I, uh, I think there's lots of not for profits which do great work, including Atlas Society. Uh, but I think um, what I've experienced is that there's not as much accountability as I'd like to see to the constituencies, whether it's 
you know, in post-secondary education, I think there ought to be accountability to students and parents. Um, and in other not-for-profits, there ought to be accountability probably to donors. And I know in many times there's lip service given to that, but I'm not satisfied. Yeah. Well, I think I'll say for the Atlas Society, part of our advantage uh, is that we have a board of trustees, pretty much all of whom are entrepreneur owner managers. And so they, they bring that kind of um, orientation uh, and help me manage and, and, uh, and they hold me accountable and I, I wouldn't want it any other way. Um, but also obviously they have a, a passion for Ayn Rand, but I do agree sometimes there is a bit of a disconnect. So none of, none of them are on social media, for example, right? Oh. And let's, I'm gonna spend a huge chunk of our you know revenues on uh, social media and on artificial intelligence and uh, on on all of these disruptive technologies um, and it's hard for me to explain to them what what we're doing because um, because there's a gap there. But yeah, if, so, if, if there's been a. I mean, there. I don't know if it's historical or not, Jag. Not-for-profit governing boards frequently have not respected term limits. Maybe it's because they need talent so desperately. If they are out there seeking talent that they, when they get somebody on their board, I've seen lots of board member leaders, which I'm sure you've seen too, which they have a few terms that frequently the board uh, is, lets them go off for a term. They come back on sometimes. I mean, so what I've done in my own life actually to the consternation of some is I've absolutely insisted on strict term limits because I think that without term limits, not-for-profits aren't forced to go out and recruit and retain new talent, which is new talent, new energy, especially in a governing way, it's everything, right? It's everything. But wouldn't it be great if they could go out and attract and retain people who had governance experience so they weren't learning how to be a member of a governing board for the first time? And I, I see that as a big challenge. That's a great idea. I'd be on board with that. Yeah. So um, right here at the top of the hour, anything that uh, that we didn't get to cover that you want to leave our audience with? I think that um, one of the things that makes the best entrepreneurs is the same thing that you see in Ayn Rand's writing, which is, are you willing to take personal responsibility for your own financial well-being and your own psychological well-being? And if you're not, you are inadvertently becoming dependent on somebody or some other entity to do that for you. And I call that being a victim and you've just given away your power because you say it's somebody else's problem. Instead, the best entrepreneur owner managers, and I think you see this in the writing of Ayn Rand, say, I'm gonna take personal responsibility for my financial well-being. You know, if I succeed or fail, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best and it's gonna be up to me. I'm gonna take personal responsibility for my own psychological well-being, which in this case may be turn off CNN, Fox News, NPR, do whatever I have to do, that I'm gonna take personal responsibility for doing that. So my, um, 
ending salvo to you. I hadn't intended this to be this way, but I would just think, I think the things that I see that make the best entrepreneurs are the same things I see in, in Ayn Rand's writing, which are those two things. Fantastic. What a great note to end on. Thank you, Pete. This was spectacular. Jag, and fun to be with you. I enjoyed your questions. Hope to see you on, on this uh, West Coast. So uh, we'll look forward to that. I want to also thank everyone who joined us today. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for all your great questions. As always, if you enjoyed this video or any of the other materials that we produce at the Atlas Society, please don't be a free rider. Uh, make an investment in helping to um, bring the ideas of Ayn Rand to the next generation. And be sure to tune in next week when Timothy Sandifer will return to the show uh, with his wonderful new book. I'm uh, reading it for the second time, Freedom's Furies, How Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand Found Liberty in an Age of Darkness. We'll see you next week. Thank you.